Amen. Psalm 119 is where we find our scripture text this morning for our sermon. Psalm 119, verse 89. This is God's word given to us as people for our good. Psalm 119, verse 89, found page 961. For using the Pew Bible in front of you. Let us hear from God's holy word as we go to it, uh, eager to receive a blessing from him. Verse 89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. And then I'll read for us Article 2 of the Belgian Confession as we continue to consider it and see what God's word would have for us and particularly the faith that we have inherited through our confessional standards here. Article 2, by what means God is made known unto us. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters, leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says. All which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. Considering this morning that God's word is holy and it is divine, that it is from him. Let us consider this together as we go to God's word to receive a blessing. Last weekend, something rather surprising and perhaps shocking happened in the state of Hawaii. I'm sure many of you have heard about this. The state of Hawaii's emergency alert systems um, sent out a message, a warning message. Everyone with a, a wireless device, a phone, or something else right on their home screen it showed up a, a warning message that a ballistic missile threat was incoming, that it was imminent, about to happen. At the bottom of this message, it said, this is not a drill. The unfunny irony of this, of course, is that it was a drill and there was no imminent threat. But for 38 wild and mania-filled minutes... The people of Hawaii took the message at face value. They believed the message. So what did people do? 
Well, there were some people who were prepared for this kind of thing. Uh, Those who had a plan, grabbed the stuff that they had set aside for such a moment, and they headed for the hills, almost in a biblical way, to hide themselves in caves and under the rocks. There were other people, perhaps less prepared. Maybe they just tried to rally their family and friends together before they attempted their escape plan. They made phone calls to the ones that they loved, but they knew that they could not reach in time. Perhaps they cried in despair. Perhaps there were some who froze in fear. A lot of different things that people did, a lot of different reactions to this message. But one thing that we can assume is that just about everyone who received the news acted upon it in some way, even if their action was completely being unable to do anything, freezing because of fear. People probably did not continue in frivolous activity, watching TV, surfing the internet, perhaps accessing terribly vulgar content on the internet. They did not continue to shop online or even read and relax, and that is because they believed this message. They believed this message, and they believed it because it it wasn't the National Enquirer that was reporting this news. It was a government agency in the state in which they lived where this message had originated. That's where it came from. Source or origin of a message is vitally important when we're trying to figure out where information comes from these days. Most people's confidence uh, all across our country and maybe even perhaps the world, most people's confidence in the news is fading. And so we engage in this kind of thinking each and every day. As Christians, we need to do this on an even more important level. From where is God's word? Where does it come from? Who wrote it and what does it express? The simple answer to that question, of course, or those questions, is that the Bible finds its source or its origin in God himself. That is why we describe it in our confession as holy and divine. It is the very words of God. And here's the central idea for us today. The Bible is the very words of God, and therefore it must be received and treasured and searched for our good. We talked last week about four things that we're trying to do over this course of a few weeks, pausing and going through Article 2 of the Confession slowly, that we are trying to establish our conviction about Scripture, and that's a big part of what we're doing today. It is God's holy word. Secondly, that we would deepen our confidence in Scripture. If we know it's from God, if we know that it expresses His will for our lives, we can be confident in believing what it says. That we would grow in our commitment to scripture. And then finally that we would seek a proper curiosity about scripture. What does it say on each and every page? I want to draw out from this psalm three ideas for us this morning. The first is this. It is the eternal word from heaven. God's word is the eternal word from heaven. Second is this. It is an unchanging word in a changing world. And thirdly, it is a certain word in our uncertain lives. We read in verse 89 about the eternal word from heaven. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. This word for eternal is a word that we see applied throughout the Old Testament to God's covenant, to his faithfulness. Your faithfulness is forever. It's a word that we even see applied to God himself. 
God is eternal. But what does Psalm 119, verse 89, mean when it says, Word, your word is eternal? We know that Psalm 119 is, of course, a, a long, by far the longest chapter in Scripture, a poem that celebrates the absolute goodness of the written word of God, that which God's prophets wrote down from of old. That raises a question for us, though. How can a written word be eternal? Because we know that the the Bible that we have, the Old and the New Testaments, was written and it was compiled over a long period of time. Well, we can say that God's word is eternal because it is the exact expression which God has purposed from all eternity to give to us. It's exactly what he intended to express in and through his word. There were times when the written words of Scripture did not exist on earth. And of course, we know that. But they did exist in the mind and the will of God. And God knew exactly what he was going to reveal and exactly when. Foundationally, this is what we have to believe. If, if God is eternal, then his word is eternal. If God is true, his word is true. If God is unchanging, then his word never changes. This also means that even a scripture like Psalm 119, which, of course, is contained in the Old Testament, it was written before the climactic events of the life of Jesus Christ, even that word and all that's found along with it in the Old Testament, that is part of the eternal truth of the scriptures of God. It's part of the eternal truth of God's word. We see this in various passages in the New Testament. Passages within the New Testament that affirm the truthfulness and the usefulness of the Old Testament scriptures. One passage that does so is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to unpack that passage in great detail next week as we think about the sufficiency of scripture. But I'd like to pull out a couple of ideas from that passage today when we think about these Old Testament passages, even ones like Psalm 119 being part of God's eternal truth. And his unchanging word. Second Timothy is a letter that Paul writes, of course, to Timothy. And he writes it at the end of his life, Paul's own life. He saw his own death as imminent. And so we know that whatever he says in Second Timothy, it's been laid upon his heart as he has been contemplating his coming death. So we need to be careful to consider all the things that he says uh, to Timothy there, knowing that this is a man who sees the, the coming end of his life. And he warns Timothy in chapter 3 of this letter that there will be those who come into the, ch- into the church. It's important to see that these are not those outside of the church. There are those who will come into the church and they will try to distort the message of the scriptures. The, these are people who come in, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Paul warns Timothy about these men and he says, avoid men such as these. Avoid them. They're going to come in. They're going to try to twist the message and the words of Scripture. Don't give yourself over to the teachings of this man. You stay firm. You stand firm. And Paul points him to a different source of authority, not what these men say, but to something else. And he tells Timothy about it in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Timothy 3. He says, as for you, You are not going to listen to these men, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about something that Timothy has learned. Now, what can you learn? You have to be able to learn the truth. Paul is implying that there is a truth that exists outside of us that can be learned. Pay attention to what you have learned, Timothy. Pay attention to what you have believed. What can you believe? You can believe a message, a gospel, a a good news message that has been given because it is a recounting of events that have really happened. Know what you have learned. Know what you have believed. Trusting in that message. He says that Timothy has known this from childhood. The Greek word there is from infancy. A wonderful evidence of the promise that God has. That that our children can learn about the truths of scripture even from the time that they are very young. And that they can be raised up into the faith and that they can never know a day when this God is not their God. You have known this from the time you were a little child. And here's the most important point He talks about these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There he is talking primarily about the Old Testament writings and he says that they have a supernatural character. They impart a wisdom unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus himself would say. He would say as he looked back and people would challenge him in light of the Old Testament, he would say things like this in John chapter 5. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. He wrote of me. All of scripture, all of scripture has this supernatural character. So this brings us to the central point for us today and the central point of what Paul says in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He says all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. What does Paul mean when he says all scripture is God-breathed? Traditionally, translations would say something like all scripture is inspired by God. And it is true that scripture is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit does move in the way of inspiring uh, men who wrote the scriptures to produce what we have. But inspiration is not precisely what Paul is pointing out here when he says all scripture is God-breathed. He also is not saying that God breathes upon a word that is already existent to endow it with some kind of power. What Paul is saying and what he says clearly is that all scripture has its starting point, its origin in God. He's pointing our minds to the fact that God breathes things and he breathes life into things. His creative power, which is seen even in Genesis 1, he breathes the universe into existence. So in a similar way, God breathes the scriptures into existence. It's talking about the origin, the source of God's word. Of course, we know that as Psalm 119 says, his word is eternal. It is from God. We also read in Psalm 119 that his word is firm. It stands firm in the heavens. The psalmist draws our attention to the heavens because whoever sits on the throne in the heavens, he it is who decides the course of history. Psalm 115 says this, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. 
in the seas and all the deeps. Whoever sits on the throne of heaven, he it is who decides the course of history. We read that God's word is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The one who sits on that throne is the one who has given this word. God's word is as sure and as certain as God himself and all the things that he does because it comes from him. God makes no mistakes and he never misspeaks. This is one of those verses that uh, is it's so beautiful that even as you check how they, they render it in different translations, you seem to get uh, different nuances and it's as if you get more and more, uh, more and more of a blessing by reading the various ways that people have rendered this verse. Some translations say God's word is established. It's a beautiful idea. It's established. Some say that his word is secure. I love the way that the, the King James and the New American Standard Bible put it. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy word is settled in heaven. If God's word is settled, then that settles it. There is no human power, there is no earthly power that can change it. God's word is settled in the heavens. Second Peter chapter 1 draws this out for us as well. Peter says that the prophecy of Scripture, and what he means by that is the writing of Scripture, does not arise from someone's own interpretation. In other words, someone doesn't look out to the world and interpret all of the things that are happening, and then they say, I'm going to go write some Scripture today. I'm going to go write part of the Bible today. Peter says, no, it comes about by the will of God. For men speak from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now men do speak and write, and the Bible is in human language, and uh, the writers were not merely empty vessels, right? They're not just uh, instruments of dictation. God uses their vocabularies and their minds and their knowledge to produce Something that is perfect, a perfect word that is inerrant, a perfect and inerrant word through fallible men. And that is part of the miracle. Peter shows that the source of this is the Holy Spirit, of course. The Holy Spirit, of course. And what's key for us to learn today is that the same Holy Spirit who inspires the words of Scripture, he it is who illumines the words of Scripture to those who hear it and those who read it. If the Scriptures are from God, then we can be confident that that is where we will find Him to be working and where we can expect Him to work. Because it's something that was produced by the will of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit who inspired the Scriptures then illumines the Scriptures and its meaning to us. This is why... At the time of the Reformation, there was this recovery of this teaching that the word of God is divine. Not that it is God himself, but they say the word of God is divine because it comes from him. He is the source of it, the source of that message. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we can be confident in what it says, believing the message. Because of this, we say that the word of God is the rule of faith. It is the rule of faith. It is the final authority in faith and in our lives. There are other sources of authority, but all other sources of authority lean on the authority of the word of God. The government of the church, the elders and the deacons, they have authority, but it's an authority that's delegated to them and it's dependent on the word of God. Our creeds and our confessions, which we take a lot of time to unpack 
and to learn. All of these things, they have an authority, but it's an authority as they represent and teach to us and open up to us the teachings of the scriptures. Behind and above all other sources of authority stands the word of God because it is eternal and it stands forever fixed, settled in the heavens. It is an eternal word. It's also an unchanging word in a changing world. Verses 90 and 91. Bring it from the heavens, in a sense, down to earth. It says, your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. The message of these verses is clear. Just as God never changes, so his word never changes. The truth has always been, and it always will be. And God reveals this truth progressively throughout history. But although that happens, it is never in doubt. It is never in doubt. Because its source is God. These verses, 90 and 91, would have hit the people of Israel a bit differently than they hit us today. As we think about change in our world. Because the change from generation to generation would have been much more subtle back then. Names change, faces change, the ones we love, we see them come to this earth and go. And we find comfort in the fact that God remains the same. But now... Change is not only a reality of our world and and something that is constantly before us. It seems as though change is often held as the fundamental reality of our world. Everything that was thought to be certain in times past can be called into question and indeed must be called into question to many in our world today. Everything from technology to entertainment to the workplace to fields of study and research, to the way we think about things most basic to our civilization, like marriage and the family. All of it must be subject to this fundamental reality of change. How do we think about change in light of Scripture? Well, first we ought to say that since we are mere creatures, uh, we ought to live in this world knowing that change is, is part of life. And change is not necessarily bad, for we are not only creatures, but we are sinful, fallen creatures. The world that human beings build is marred by sin. You only need to read the first dozen chapters or so of Genesis to see when left to our sinful corruption, we will continually build kingdoms that are often marred by destruction and oppression. So lack of change is not necessarily good. But then change is not necessarily good either. Because we are sinful again and corrupted by sin. So the changes that human beings make are not automatically going to put us on a road towards greater human flourishing. And because we live in a world that is marred by sin and death and the curse of the fall, we know that nothing that we do is ever going to set us on a road towards a perfect utopian world. The only way that we can, uh, that we can experience the fullness of the flourishing of life is when God removes the curse of sin and death. In all things, change, lack of change, we see a, a mixture of good and bad. But that does not mean that we should be necessarily we should have necessarily the same reaction to all things that change in our life. There have been many things 
even in the lifetimes of people in this room, a lot of things that have changed and have been for the better. You could name a couple. The recognition of the worth and dignity of persons, regardless of race or background. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that has changed. We think of the increase of quality of life and the care that we can receive medically. The, the technology that we have now that has made life in many ways easier and more comfortable for people. The kind of care that we can receive. Wonderful things that have changed. But then notice how some of these ideas are connected to other things that have brought about change in our society that as Christians we simply cannot get behind. The idea of worth and dignity it soon becomes a conversation about unfettered freedom to each person such that every person has complete autonomy and they become a sovereign unto themselves and they have this ability to make all of these decisions, even decisions as we think about today on Sanctity of Life Sunday, decisions about what would happen inside their womb, your body, your decision, conveniently ignoring that there is another body involved. The amount that we know scientifically and medically, it makes way for all kinds of confusion in issues around the beginning of life with certain kinds of genetic engineering and the end of life as well with human beings ever increasingly playing the role of God who is the creator and the giver of life. And in the midst of all that change, we read that both God himself and his word never changes. In this world where change is put forth as the, the fundamental reality for many, the only place where we can stand is by saying that God's word never changes. For God never changes. What he declared is true always has been true and always will be true. People are going to argue about whether or not there is absolute truth and whether or not we can know that truth, which is, of course, an absurd activity. In the midst of all that, know, brothers and sisters, that God's word remains the same and his gospel never changes. And we must notice how that is where it comes to bear upon our own lives. The faith, what Paul tells Timothy to remember that you have believed, the faith that was once delivered for all of the saints. This does not change from one day to the next. It does not change from one century to the next. The author of Hebrews, the staggering beautiful sentence where he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The savior that Jesus was 1,000 years ago, he still is today. The commandments that he gave to his church 2,000 years ago, they remain the same because they are found in God's holy word. Not only that, but Jesus' life the life that he lived where no deceit was found in his mouth as we read in Second Peter the life that he lived, the death that he died, the cross being the place where we are reconciled, the empty tomb, the fact that he was raised again on the third day, the fact that he ascended and is reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father and that he is our mediator and that he is our representative. The fact that anyone can be reconciled to God by hearing the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ, abandoning themselves and looking to him, all of these things Never change, for the faith needs to be once delivered. And when it is once delivered, that faith never changes. And the church brings that message forward because it is contained in God's holy word. It is also a certain word 
in the midst of our uncertain lives. All things serve you, as verse 91 says. In all things, we must ask, are we, are we including ourselves? And that becomes the cry of Psalm 119. In all areas of our lives, that we would serve God. How do we serve God? How do we love Him? How do we enjoy Him and glorify Him forever? Psalm 119 answers that for us. It is through His Word. It is through His Word. Let's draw out the conclusions of what comes before us in this psalm. First, a holy and a perfect and immovable God has given a changeless and eternally true Word. Second, Since this word is from our creator and our redeemer, it is our final authority in faith and in life. A God-breathed word is authoritative. Third, we must receive that word. We must receive it, not judge it, not take it or leave it. We must receive it as God's will for us. Fourth, in receiving that word, we continually treasure it more and more. We learn it in the midst of a changing world, and in the midst of our uncertain lives. It is an anchor, an anchor for the soul. The rest of this section of the psalm shows us the mind of someone who is convinced of such things. What does their life look like? This is what it shows us in the rest of the psalm. Verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God's word is put forth as a source of protection. It's a source of Protection. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It is a shelter for our soul. It's a, it's a shelter for our soul. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. It's a source of provision. Our Lord believed this and taught this to us. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 94, save me for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. It's a source of identity. Save me, my God, for I am yours. In the midst of a changing world where the question, who am I, is a question where uh, this world can offer you no certain answer. God's word says you belong to God, the creator and the redeemer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. Fundamentally, that is what it means to think biblically that God's word is a source of identity. We belong to this God. Verse 95, the wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. In the midst of this impending danger, what do we see happening here? That God's word is a source of calm and comfort. Impending danger and doom, who would take time to read and to ponder and to meditate God's word? But it's because God's word is a source of calm and comfort in the midst of a changing world, in the midst of uncertain lives. Verse 96, to all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. God's word is a source of a renewed mind, a renewed mind, a new worldview. It teaches you about man. It teaches you about God. And you look out to the world. And what do you see? To all perfection there is a limit. People may convince themselves that without God, without God's word, without redemption, without the resurrection, that somehow, some way, science and progress and technology is going to overcome all of the problems that we have. It's not true. To all perfection I see a limit. But there are no limitations in God. This is why the psalmist gives himself to it. 
gives himself to God's word with such reckless abandon. May we too give ourselves to this word, knowing that there we find the Holy Spirit's consistent, saving, sanctifying, grace-filled work in our lives. If God gave it, then that is where we can be confident that we will find his activity in and for us. The Holy Spirit has inspired it. The Holy Spirit continues to illuminate. We give ourselves not to any man, but to the God-man. We give ourselves not to any human word, but the word which God breathed into existence as the word for his people. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given it to us. May we treasure it. May we receive it. May we experience its life-transforming power in and through the gospel and the power of your spirit bringing it before us. We thank you and we praise you as our creator and redeemer, the one who is ever unchanging and yet the God who is for us in the gospel. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's respond together in song and sing number 59. Forever settled in the heavens. In our red Trinity hymnals, let's 